You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Can you describe its form? No. Start from the beginning. What do you think I do when you're away? You think I'm out in the garden, pining, looking up at the sky? (laughs) Why aren't you here? I gotta leave a day early. Your husband's here. Let me see him. He's extremely ill. You have to tell me where he was, what he was doing. It was his decision to go in. It's something they termed the shimmer. We've sent in drones and teams of people, but nothing comes back. But something has. You're a biologist. He served in the military. If I knew what happened, I could save his life. The boundary's getting bigger, it's expanding. We're talking cities, states. You need to know what's inside. So do I. It's beautiful. Check this out. It's like they're stuck in a continuous mutation. Anything interesting in there? No. Sharks have teeth like that. It's not possible. You can't crossbreed different species. What is it? The soldiers on the last expedition. They went crazy. Or something in here killed them. Something's come through the fence. Through the fence? We have to go back. I can't go back. We can camp here tonight. It's destroying everything. It's not destroying. It's making something new. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Chris Dashu. Are you there, Ghost Bird? Also back in the booth is Mr. Tony Black. In the black water with the sun shining at midnight, those fruits shall come ripe, and in the darkness of that which is golden shall split open to reveal the revelation of the fatal softness in the earth. Sorry, that's from the book Annihilation, but... This week we are looking at the 2018 film from writer-director Alex Garland, Annihilation. The film stars Natalie Portman as Lena, a biologist who has lost her husband to a place called Area X. She is part of a team that goes into Area X, perhaps in search of answers or for something more. Based very loosely on the first book of the trilogy by Jeff Vandermeer, Annihilation is a terrifically cerebral sci-fi film, and we plan on spoiling the heck out of it for you. So if you haven't seen it, please do so now. We will be here when you return. So Chris, did you see Annihilation at the theater or on a streaming platform first? Unlike probably everyone on this podcast and probably a lot of listeners, I actually saw this in theaters. Oh, what assumptions you make. It's pretty a fair assumption considering how you could have gone to the theaters, watched it, and then illegally downloaded it the same day. Because it was, or was it the same day or was it like three days later? It was probably the same day. I think I had it on the Plex server by the time I went to the theater. Yeah, because it was. Oh, you did see it in theaters, yes. right? Yeah, because I mean, it was a. Uh, it was released in Europe 
on their on their Netflix because that's where was it Sony dumped it or not Paramount excuse me Paramount dumped it on the same day they released it stateside uh, I saw it in theaters it's a film that benefited from being seen on the big screen uh, especially the end the climax of the film is like the amount of bass necessary to fully enjoy it at the end is truly something else. No, I saw it in theaters last year. I was one of probably four people in the theater on opening day to see it. And yeah, yeah, I saw it in theaters, which, you know, it was in theaters for like a week, not even. So you're trying to say that you saw it in theaters. It's also my favorite movie from last year. And that's not like a, if you've listened to my podcast that you would, you would know that that's not a new statement, but, um, yeah, it's, it's pretty, pretty great movie. (laughs) Just, just on the face of it. It's a fucking great movie. Can I just say I'm super jealous of you, Chris, for this? Because as you say, in, in Europe, and I'm based in the UK, as you can probably tell, we, we only got it on Netflix. And there was no you know, cinematic release at all, as far as I'm aware, except maybe the odd screening here and there, although I, don't, I can't even remember those. And after watching it on Netflix, much as I've enjoyed it more a second time around, to be honest... Even what first time around, I was like, "Oh man, this would this is so this would be so good on a big screen." So I, I'm really frustrated that it was dumped, and it never should have been dumped. You know, you dump dump the Cloverfield paradox by all means. Don't just dump Annihilation. You know, really, really sad. And that's what happened. It actually was just unceremoniously dumped. We're not really, we're not you, we're not, we're not exaggerating. Paramount literally just went fuck you guys in the UK and and overseas. You don't need to see this in theaters. So I would ask Mike where he saw it, but Mike, I guess saw it in theaters as well. Went to see it with the wife and enjoyed it. I was getting such a strong stalker vibe out of this. And I'm hoping you guys maybe had a chance to watch stalker and maybe agree with me or not. But even on its own merits, I really enjoyed it as a film. It's like stalker refracted. Ooh, nice. It has some of the DNA of stalker in it. Stalker kind of goes in a different direction. This shares some kind of the bones of Stalker, but I think that they're two very different beasts for sure. There's a there's a fair bit of uh, Lovecraft, certainly in the book, especially cosmic horror. This is so driven by cosmic horror. The the book more so than the movie, I, and that was kind of my complaints with the movie is that it it doesn't fully commit to the cosmic horror. I, I know some people had that same problem. I wish that there was more of it, but I mean, as much as there is, I'll take it because there's not enough cosmic horror stuff out there to begin with anyways. It could have been that they didn't want to make it too similar to the Lovecraft story it's been most compared to, which is The Color Out of Space, which has a similar idea about a meteor landing and then unleashing something biological. But if you can tap Lovecraft, tap Lovecraft as far as I'm concerned. And And it does have that weird fiction element to it in the movie still. Strange fiction is something that I don't feel like enough folks have uh, any exposure to. And that's for a multitude of reasons. One of them being Lovecraft stuff is not adapted very much. I mean, there have been things. Yeah, that's a nice way of putting it. But I mean, when you have someone like Guillermo del Toro who is trying to adapt Mountains of Madness and it, you know, sat there for like seven years, and they're like, oh, we're making it. We're not making it. We're making it. We're not making it. And then. It ends up never happening. I mean, that would have been I, that would have been like the first time we really would have had a big budget Lovecraft adaptation, and it ended up going nowhere because shockingly, it had to be shot somewhere where there was snow and mountains 
and it would have cost a lot of money and a lot of people who were involved with the project probably didn't want to commit the amount of time necessary to really make the film the way it needed to be made. It's because it's super weird, you know, and that's the thing with Annihilation. That was what David Ellison was worried about after a test screening, which didn't go down well. He was worried it was going to be too intellectual, which is just another way of saying, how do we market this in a, in a neat package? You know, when the reality is you can't neatly package Annihilation, either the movie or the book, because they are weird <laughs> in a good way. This is another one of those films, kind of like Edge of Tomorrow, not only was it dumped overseas, like where you live. I don't know, Mike, if you feel it was dumped here as well, but it kind of feels like it was. They really poorly advertised this film. At the time, I remember having watched the trailers then and then rewatched them in prep for the podcast. Like They're trying to market it as like a sci-fi horror movie. And like it's a lot more than that. The way that they marketed it in the States was so weird because... It did the film a massive disservice, but like you said, Tony, how do you market this film anyway? Yeah, I don't think I saw a trailer for this. I just kind of knew about it maybe through io9, and they were talking about this controversy of it being released, you know, almost same day in Europe and other parts of the world as it was here in the States. Uh, and at first I, I couldn't figure out what they were trying to say. Like, is this movie just being dumped on Netflix and it's also being released theatrically? Is this doing kind of a Steven Soderbergh model or what's going on? And then people kept saying, you know, oh, you need to see this movie. You know, it's uh, four five strong women characters and this is right around Ghostbusters had come and went and was a complete utter disaster and it's like well we should probably support more sci-fi films that star women because otherwise we'll keep getting crap like Ghostbusters and it's like okay well this image of the poster looks interesting so I might as well go and I basically based everything that I knew on the poster and went in with that that's the way that I like to see movies, though, is don't tell me anything about it and let me just go see it. Ladies, Mike's opinion on Ghostbusters 2016 is his own. He is a misogynist. That movie is a, a cinema classic. It is a comedy classic. It is better than the original Ghostbusters. And I am lying. So there's a new Ghostbusters movie coming out. And for something related to one of my favorite franchises, it may be expected that I review it. But instead of a review, for once, I'm doing something a little different. A non-review, because I refuse to watch it. Judging from the trailers, it looks awful. Yeah, that's the crazy thing about all this, right? Because Ghostbusters came out in 2016. Then you have something that, uh, another uh, sci-fi film with a strong female lead in it. Like you were talking about, Tony, <laughs> The Cloverfield Paradox. That did get dumped on Netflix. And it deserved it yeah rightly so yeah and then you have this film and they all have strong female leads i don't see anyone going just one of the best films of 2018 this kind of got lost in the shuffle behind a lot of other films and it just got lost behind black panther and then infinity war i think those things like that that were dominating the conversation and you know the fact yeah it got a, a, a release in the in, a, in the US but i don't know how many how many screens did it get screened in i don't know that actually you guys might but you know it, it may not have had a massive release it just went to netflix in the uk and so have many people even seen it i'm i'm doubtful about that i know it was available at my local multiplex so it wasn't like i had to go to a specialty you know art house theater to see it or anything which was good i mean it was on 2100 screens well, that's a lot of screens, but the bigger point is 
It's uh, ranked 143rd in opening weekends in February uh, of all time. It is uh, ranked 39 uh, in sci-fi films based on books. So it's not like it didn't make any money. I just think a lot of people went and saw it and were like, okay, what is going on? Yeah, it doesn't provide you any easy answers. And Tony, you talked about the whole idea of something weird comes from outer space and it's biological. And that's almost the beginning of this movie with the whole idea of this meteor coming down, hitting this lighthouse. And that comes after a scene that we have where we've got Benedict Wong interrogating Natalie Portman in this little room. And we don't necessarily know what's going on with that. So we have this mystery revealing itself throughout the film, though we never get that neat and tidy answer that a lot of people really need to have. They need stuff wrapped up with a bow. And with this one, it's like, no, you can kind of interpret it the way that you want to. And I mean, the visuals in this movie are absolutely striking. When that meteor hits the lighthouse, it looks terrific. And everything inside of what they call the shimmer inside of Area X just looks fantastic. The colors are so heightened. Everything is just more real than real. So yeah, again, seeing this on the big screen, it was really something. And there are parts in this one, I'm watching it on a TV screen, where I'm just like, what am I supposed to be getting out of this? Like, there's one moment where a woman is looking at her fingerprints and apparently they're moving. And I'm like, okay, yeah, I can't see that on my little screen. There's just no way. The interesting thing about the meteorite is, I mean, if you've read the books, which we've all read the first book, I don't know how much farther down y'all went with the book. I went all the way down the rabbit hole. Same. (laughs) For those who have not read the books, in the third book, you finally figure out where the shimmer came from. Oh, you figured that out? Because I didn't. Where? Can you tell me what happened in these books? Because I couldn't make heads or tails. I mean, let me put it this way. I did, definitely had to go and do some extra reading. <laughs> the third book is the third book is the hardest to process of the three. Should we talk about the books and just kind of unpack where we are with the, with all these books rather than just jumping into the third one? They're not as good. I mean, I, I will I will go on record. I think as saying that I think it's the first book is really striking. I mean, I read the I read the book before a good year before I saw the film at least, and I, and it was one of the creepiest things I've ever ever read. And it really got under my skin. And then I read the sequels not long before the movie. And they're very different. Authority, the next one, is far more about control as it as as the um the, the new director of the Southern Reaches. And it's it's it doesn't it doesn't take place in Area X, I don't think at all. It's just all it's 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 sort of set on the outside. And then the third book, Acceptance, it goes back into the mythology of the history of, you know, the the the, the mythology that underpinned Annihilation involving Characters that aren't even in the movie, like the lighthouse keeper and things like that, and the psychologist character. And it sort of te- brings all three books together, but I don't think it has that raw... They're, they're bigger books for a start, whereas Annihilation is a smaller book. It's not much longer than a novella in many ways, and it just hits you like a ton of bricks and infills you with all this terrifying, weird fiction imagery. So I, I kind of think that it's there were a lot of changes made for the movie, a significant amount of changes. Some of them for the better, some of them not, but I don't think you need to have read all three books to necessarily engage with this film. I think they're a completely separate entity, you know? And from what I understand, Garland just read the first book and he didn't go back and reread the book. He just kind of used that as his memory of it to base the screenplay on, which I think is great. Yeah, he wrote it from memory, which is super. First off, 
Alex Garland, that's fantastic of a thing to do. Just, I mean, again, there is something to be said for adapting a book not entirely from rote, which is fine. I mean, like, look, there are enough movies based off of books out there that are just a one-to-one adaptation. As, you know, as Jeff Vanderbeer, I don't know how I would feel about that. But at the same time, go ahead and make it your own thing. You mentioned, Mike, jumping into the books. The the reason you can actually jump into the third book ahead of all of them is the third book, parts of it take place before the first book, which is what allows you to, like, figure out where the Shimmer came from. And the funny thing about, you know, the intro scene of this film where you've got the meteorite and it is, you know, it causes the Shimmer. In the third book, you find out that kind of the same thing. It is a meteorite. Those books weren't even out yet when he was writing the script for this movie, which a little bit of interesting synchronicity. I mean, I'm, maybe I'm assuming Jeff Vandermeer told him. I don't think so. I've, I've, I didn't read any, any interviews saying that. See, I didn't get a meteor at all from that third book. No, I didn't either. I, I, I felt like the, that was a completely... Not say you're wrong, Chris, because I think there's a lot of interpretation to be made. Oh, no, I might be wrong. <laughs> I could be wrong. I don't care. <laughs> these books are, look, these books are up to, it is, a lot of this really is, as we say it, up to interpretation. For sure. 100%. And I think it, it's, it's one of those things where the, the, I didn't, I didn't get from those sequels the suggestion that what is called the crawler in the books, it's not necessarily called that in the film, was an alien organism. But it, it, it would make sense, you know? So, but it, it, it is the fact. I think Jeff Vandermeer was okay with him adapting loosely the core sort of ideas and the core sort of characters and then doing his own thing with it. I think, I think he understood that. I mean, I, I don't know about you guys. I think that first book in its, in its book form is pretty unadaptable. I think it's, it's very personalized to the one character, to the biologist, and it is, it, it, it throws you into a situation and it's more about mood and in texture and, and, and the, the, the general creepy feeling of the whole thing than, than actual plot and story in many ways. So I, I think he, t- he takes what the, what that, the essence of that is. And I think he, he throws a lot more into the pot, really. I, I, I find the, the movie easier to understand than the book and the movie's not easy to understand. <laughs> no, no, no. And, and the thing is, you're, you're completely right. The book, the book is so laser focused in what it's going for that I give Alex Garland all the commendation in the world for actually being able to turn it into a narrative structure that we get in the film. Because the book also takes place over like a day, it feels like, like not even. Again, this doesn't take place over just a day. I mean, this takes place over several days. This is a, a film that's two hours long. The book it's only four times longer than that. This is a short book. I mean, it's less than eight hours if you're just doing the if you're doing the audible thing. I think it's actually maybe just right at eight hours. But the second and third book, yeah, I wasn't a fan either. You know, whenever people always say, "Oh, the book's always better than the movie," like they're two different things this time. Like literally separate beasts. They have the same DNA of there's this weird area called the Shimmer, and that's kind of it. I mean, even in the movie, the characters are given names. In the book, the characters aren't given names. They're the same templates, though. They, they are. They are the same. There's the surveyor, the biologist, the psychologist. But you're right. They're, they're given. They're fleshed out more in in terms of characters in in certain ways. Whereas in the book, because they, they kind of had to be. Yeah, they have to be. Yeah. Yeah, and that again goes back to Stalker for me because those characters in Stalker are the writer, Stalker himself, 
and the doctor and that's all they're known as they never have names and so it's very much like the the book of annihilation where it's the biologist the psychologist the linguist the names that they end up giving these characters in annihilation the movie end up being based very much on J.G. Ballard's book, The Crystal World. So that's another influence on this. And then especially when you get towards the end of Annihilation and you see all of those crystal trees, I'm just like, okay, yeah. I mean, that whole thing is, Ballard's book is the idea of the world changing into this crystalline new world. He had this whole thing, like he had uh, the, I think it was the drowned world. They had, uh, it was like the, the world was, was sinking in the water or water was rising. There was one where it was all turning to desert and then there's one where it's all turning to crystal. After a while, you start to be like, okay, yeah, I've read this story before, but each one of them has their own merits. I love J.G. Ballard, but I haven't come across that book. But there is something about the kind of style. I think there's something of a shared level of DNA between Van der Meer and Ballard in terms of how they write. I think they they present these very, and the movie does capture this, these very sort of stark almost nihilistic worlds where you don't necessarily feel like there is going to be a happy ending at the end of it and that there is that these characters are going to suffer and it's part of a broader con- conceptual idea and and I, and they they are writing about very different kinds of things but I think I think the movie captures a level of coldness and distance which I think I, I think is appropriate given the, the the ideas at the heart of the movie you know and you also, I mean, going back to the whole uh, Lovecraft thing with the you know strange biological entity from outer space taking things over, you don't know who's who or what's what. I mean, we're right back into the thing territory as well, especially towards the end where it's like, is this really Lena? Is this really Kane? Or, you know, is it, <laughs> why don't we just sit around and find out and wait till winter comes kind of thing? You know, it's just we don't know with this, but these people are out in the world as opposed to being trapped in a station in antarctica there's the parallels there as well i mean i think of course um in the mouth of madness is the most lovecraftian uh, of the carpenter films but there's so much lovecraft in his other stuff especially in the thing and can we talk about how great in the mouth of madness is in regards to something like annihilation because like we've said there aren't very many lovecraft things it's like annihilation in the mouth of madness well, you're talking about like uh, who is it? Stuart Gordon, all of those reanimator, the reanimator. I mean, the asphyx going back to going back to the hammer stuff with the asphyx. I think there's uh, elements of there. I I think that the proper adaptations of uh, Lovecraft may not be as good as the ones that are more influenced by him. I know that the book that Life Force was based on, I think, which is called The Space Vampires. That is very, very Lovecraft. I don't know if they necessarily capture that in the book, but I know that the writer of The Space Vampires was like, oh, yeah, I was totally going for a Lovecraft kind of a feel here. I, th- I think it I think it would be difficult to ad- adapt Lovecraft again, much like Vandermeer's novel here. I think it's difficult to adapt Lovecraft precisely because Lovecraft stories, they were always – like they were always like campfire story retellings. There's always there's always someone at the, it's at the end of a tale and they're telling about the terrible thing that happened in the dark wood or in that house, you know, or the thing I have suffered. And then at the end, inevitably, in almost all of your stories, the person telling the story is doomed and something terrible is about to happen to them. So that you know, so to trying to adapt that specifically, it for a lot of those stories is is, is tricky. But 
taking the idea, you know, the core essence of, of those kind of Lovecraftian weird fiction tales where there is, there is a sense of foreboding. There is a sense of doom. There is really a sense that there are no answers. There is no catharsis for anyone that, that there is, there is just questions and confusion and fear and terror. And bringing that into a movie, I think he's really powerful. Not everyone does it. The, the far, far, far more science fiction movies or horror movies, they have some level of a journey for a character, whereas Annihilation does. But I think it's more about the. It's about questioning what precisely makes makes a human being in some senses, you know, by both biologically and 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 psychologically and everything like that. And it, and it doesn't by the end. It it's. It's not the answer you might think or might expect. We're going all the way down to the cellular level in this. And one of the first things that we see after the meteor hitting the lighthouse is cells dividing. And then we learn that this is inside of a classroom and we have the biologist. We have Lena, Natalie Portman, leading this class, teaching this class. And I think that almost everybody in the class is women, if I'm not mistaken. So again, we're kind of foreshadowing what's going to be happening in this film. And then also that the cancer that we see on screen and cancer is going to be a huge theme to this film. That is cervical cancer. So it's just like, okay, this is something that is much more of a, a female thing. So we're going to, you know, talk about that as well. And then as we go through, I mean, the one thing that was interesting to me is that I don't think going back to the books again, I don't think that we know that the psychologist has cancer until maybe the third book. That's the third book. Cause the third book, she's like one of the, there's three concurrent stories and her story is one of the three. And so this whole idea of who has cancer and everyone who travels into the shimmer in this story, in this annihilation movie has something that they're carrying with them. Sometimes literally like a locket and sometimes uh on their body like the woman who has the um knife marks on her or you know slashes on her uh wrists where she tried to commit suicide and some of them you know might have cancer going on so everybody's got something that they're taking with them something that they're trying to work out i mean there's the one woman who what was it her son died so her daughter died of leukemia you're right so again cancer and then she, you know, says that she suffered two deaths, you know, the death of the daughter and then the death of herself. And she'll suffer a third death pretty soon here. And one of the most horrific deaths that I think that we've seen on film or not seen on film, but the aftermath is just, oh, my God, that's the most bone chilling scene in this film. One of the main themes of this film is self-destruction and, you know, destroying destroying yourself either you destroying yourself or you being destroyed, uh, you're choosing to destroy yourself. I mean, Lena's character is essentially traffics in self-destruction, uh, you know, with her kind of destroying her relationship due to her cheating on her husband, even though he's, she doesn't know he's dead yet or not dead or. Yeah. Who knows when that scene took place? That's the thing. Right. We're not given any context. Sure. But then you have the character who's trying, who's trying to commit suicide, trying to kill herself. Um, then you have the character of uh, Ventress who is self-destructing in another way, uncontrolled through the cancer. And then you have the geomorphologist who's talking about how she, you know, you know, my, I died. You know, she said that, you know, there were two deaths, my own, uh, the person I used to be and my daughter. So it's a lot of self-destruction. But the other thing I wanted to mention, and I, I don't think it can be overlooked, 
uh, is the music by Ben Salisbury and Jeff Barrow. Uh, if you know Portishead, Jeff Barrow is one half of Portishead. Um, the music in the introduction of this film is amazing. The music is amazing throughout. And the track of the alien at the end of the film is 12 minutes of insanity. I mean, I have to give them a huge amount of credit for really helping set the mood and tone of this film with their music because it helps get in the mood and set the tone for what this film is going to be so well just from that intro scene. It works, I think, in in many ways similar to Michael, what Michael Levi does, does for Under the Skin, which 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 is a, a similar kind of movie in some senses, but it's certainly tonally in many ways. But I think. Um, it, again, they're both they're both. I mean, they're both scores that are hard to listen to individually. You know, I'm a big movie, film score fan, as I'm sure you guys are. But um, I, I struggle to listen to Annihilation as a score on its own. But it works really well with these visuals because, like you say, it really does underscore everything with a very, very potent, portentous, you know, pallor. You know, every, every, it really gets under your skin like the movie does. Um, and I think I think they really achieved that very well. I agree. Well, the song for me, the Cosby Stills and Nash song is so powerful. And the whole idea of that chorus, the, they are one person, they are two alone, they are three together, they are for each other. And when that is there on the soundtrack so loud, when she is hugging Kane, who has come back ostensibly from the dead, she hasn't seen her husband. She thinks that he's dead. The person that comes in gives her, or she hugs him. I can't say that he gives her a hug. There's no reaction to it. And just the lyrics of that song, it's just like, oh, wow, this is uh, really trying to tell us something. I think that it uh, is a perfect music choice for this movie. It just cuts off, doesn't it? It just uh, when when it cuts to her talking to Kane at the at the table, it just it just cuts away, you know, like it's that she's snapping into into a level of cold reality at that point when she's realizing that he's not the man that you know he was. And I, I mean, credit to Oscar Isaac as well because he doesn't have a big role in this in terms of screen time, but he's he's dead behind those eyes. I mean, that that at that table, that moment when they're talking. And he's just, he's just given a very basic answers. You really get that feel. You know, th- this film, you mentioned the thing, obviously, which is absolutely spot on, Mike, but also I, I always get a, a very body snatchers kind of feeling from this. You know, it's that whole, it's that, it's the same, which is a very similar kind of idea, obviously, isn't it? You know, it's that same idea of, you know, you are replaced by somebody who is inhuman, you know, and it's, it's not the person that you knew. And that, that's you know, common science fiction trope in all kinds of things, TV shows, movies, but here, I think in his limited screen time, Oscar Isaac really gets that across, you know, and and you can feel the distance between them. Yeah, we get that also in the book quite a bit when it comes to the whole idea of the spores and the spores getting inside of you. So again, it's like the pods that we have in Invasion of the Body Snatchers and these spores get inside of the biologist. And by the time we hit that third book, we realize that the biologist that we knew is not the same person that is there now and she is more of the biologist than the other biologist that is around there the other one her original self is turned into this huge gelatinous monster with all of these eyes and the biologist that we know or we call her by that time ghostbird ghostbird is more of a person than the person she once was so again that death and that re- 
rebirth into something that you weren't before. And again, she's got this, it, she is part of the shimmer. She's part of the area X where life is just kind of finding its own way. And we'll talk about that whole refraction of life later on. And then also talk about refraction. You were talking about the Oscar Isaac at the table scene, the way that his hands are being distorted and refracted through the glass of water that he's drinking. Again, you know, again, I'm thinking of the end of Stalker with the glass of water or the glass that moves from this little girl's thoughts, but just that refraction of the, the visuals through the water. And we get that several times throughout because not only is he drinking water here, but then the biologist Lena is drinking water in the area where, um, Benedict Wong is asking her all these questions. So we have that going through as well and showing these different distortions or refractions of light and of, of images, uh, and especially hands as we go throughout here. I didn't think that the, the glass moved at the end of Stalker because of the child. I thought it was because of the train, but that was just me. That's one of those great debates. Did the, did the top fall or did it not? The refraction thing in this movie is, I mean, again, it's a completely unique way of addressing how kind of the alien life form and the alien nature of the shimmer exists. Cause I can't think of another science fiction, anything where it's about the, the DNA being refracted and it refracting around one another and being refracted out and refract and reflected back. in. it's so weird, right? It's such a weird idea that, I really appreciate it because it's changing their DNA in a way that they can clearly control, but not really. Because later in the film, one of the characters just decides to give in and become a plant. Then you have the character of Cass who her DNA gets refracted into the bear creature on top of everything else. So it's it's just this interesting idea of like controlled and uncontrolled destruction because the refraction of their DNA is like changing them so much that, I mean, at you know, one point Lena now has a tattoo on her arm and that's because of someone else in her party who has the tattoo as well. And she didn't have it when she left. And then when she comes back, you can very clearly see it in the shots when she's talking to Benedict Wong. Well, not only does that character have the tattoo, but then one of the bodies that we find inside of the shimmer had the exact same tattoo. So did she have that before? I don't know. It, it, was it from that body onto her onto the biologist or how did that move around or are there multiple tattoos? But yeah, the whole idea of things are malleable enough that a tattoo can move from one person to another is pretty terrific. Well, and speaking of things moving the scene where they're reviewing the camera and you see uh, Oscar Isaacs cutting open one of his uh, expedition members, pulling his skin back and watching his intestines move. I remember in theaters when I was watching that scene, I was like, what the fuck are we watching now? <laughs> like, what is what is that even right now? Like, I could not like because it's it's such a hard left. Like, all of a sudden we're talking about body horror and. It's not readily apparent when you sit down to watch the film that there's going to be that kind of body horror. And yet all of a sudden there's a guy who has tentacles and like his intestines are snakes moving around inside of his body. Yeah, in, in the run up to that, it's it's felt more like a slow, measured 
creeping science fiction movie in some in some respects. It's, it doesn't feel like that. That's a sudden lurch into horror, and then I suppose they they amp that up a little bit. I mean, you've got the scene a little before that, I, I suppose, where um, Tessa Thompson gets yanked back by the creature thing in in that shack. But it's still not it's still not that kind of movie. But I think I don't think it is, it's ever any of those things, is it? It, it sort of flits between all of these different styles as part of the entire package for the majority after they go into the shimmer and they lose that time. Like she wakes up a few days after they've gone in apparently, and they don't remember making camp. They don't remember any of that stuff, which I found interesting that again, going back to the book, that that is all because of hypnotic suggestion and that they are all trained hypnotically. And the biologist is the only one who can't be affected by the, the hypnosis, and also that the title of the book, Annihilation, is supposed to be basically a self-destruct command from the the psychologist. And when she's saying annihilation, annihilation, basically everyone's supposed to kill themselves. So I was like, wow. But yeah, when they go into the Shimmer, and they are at their camp and all that, and they have all their packs on, I mean, it feels like we've been transported to like a Vietnam film, and we've got these women carrying their guns they look like soldiers and they're going through and they don't know you know any noise could be charlie in the bush kind of a thing and it's like we're in a war film all of a sudden and then yeah when when tessa thompson gets yanked back into that shack it's just like oh shit we're playing for real now this is some real shit going on and that huge alligator crocodile i guess it is coming out and you're just coming up on land and they're just pumping it full of bullets and nothing is affecting it. And finally, you know, we've got, uh, Lena just looking so badass with her gun and all the slow motion bullets and stuff. It's just like, what movie am I watching now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, it, it really does that. It kind of, it, it does throw you off. I think the, the thing as well with, the setting and with with everything is that I, I mean maybe I feel this more in the book, but I do get a bit of it from the film in that you don't all it doesn't necessarily feel like it could it's it could be today. It it feels a little bit out, which is maybe appropriate. It feels a little bit out of time in some senses. I think this could be the near future. It could be the recent past. You know, it, it even though they they it's clearly you know the, the the current age in some senses i get a feeling of timelessness about the setting and, and the area you know the area is is given a little bit more of a placement i guess in in the movie but in the book it almost feels like it could be anywhere on earth and it, and it has it, it could it's not far off from being a fantasy world in some senses, the Southern Reach, Area X, the fact that all these people don't have names in the books makes that even more apparent. The movie does make it a little bit clearer in that sense and a little bit more easy to read and understand. But I still get a feeling of this place being removed from the world we know. Even even inside Area X, obviously, you know, it, it's it's being transformed and it's strange, undeniably strange. It reminded me in a weird way of of, of Lost, the TV show, in the in terms of the setting anyway. It being a completely strange, weird world that you just can't reconcile with anything else. Yeah, also in the way that we go back and forth in time is very close to what Lost is doing as well. Not that that's a necessarily an inspiration like Alex Garland, but, you know, it's it's that whole – it is that whole – and because, you know, something like Lost would have been heavily inspired by weird fiction and Lovecraft as well in its own way, you know, but it, it is all within the same wheelhouse, I guess. Well, yeah, in the whole idea of the island versus Area X, I mean, once they cross into the Shimmer, they are separated from the world just as they are separated on the island itself. 
and that, that that really appeals to me that idea of 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 the of the area x itself this could be edenic almost kind of nature place where nature is reclaiming the world and nature is 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 slowly edging and and taking everything over you know in the i don't know if it's mentioned in the movie but in the book there is a lot of talk about how it is it might be in the film actually that it is changing the environment and it is building something new and that really interests me the idea that this alien organism it isn't necessarily malevolent you know and that that's something that i came away from this very much thinking is you know it, it, in a lot of the kind of examples we've talked about things like the thing body snatches etc there is a level of malevolence you know there is a level of alien imposters taking over that kind of thing it could be an alien invasion i don't i didn't necessarily get that from annihilation i got it more that this is nature this is an element of nature that's taken an impact from something extra natural if you'd like and he's transforming the world into something new i i, I it's strange i didn't necessarily feel it was an evil presence in the movie, anyway. It's meant to be up to interpretation, right? And I would agree with you that I didn't sense any malevolence with the Shimmer or, you know, what came out of the meteorite, which is, you know, the Shimmer. But, yeah, I, I think the idea is that it's supposed to be left up to interpretation because what the movie is talking about is not, like you guys said, it's not about, you know, doppelgangers controlling the world and going out and wrecking havoc. It's about going somewhere and changing and then coming back and not being the same person you once were and the kind of self-destruction and reconstruction that goes into that. And that can be interpreted any number of ways because, you know, I don't think that this film is just on its face. You know what I mean? There's a lot more going on to this movie than just on its face, which is fine. I know that that will bother a lot of people that you kind of really have to read into this movie a lot. And that kind of gives it that literary quality to the film that it has kind of interpretation attached to it, which, again, I know open-endedness and interpretation bother a lot of filmgoers, and that's fine, and you don't have to read into it. You can just watch this as a science fiction film, but I feel like it's doing the film a massive disservice if you don't at least walk away with some questions about meaning and questions about destruction and reconstruction and, and kind of what it means to accept what you're doing as a human being and, and being self-destructive. And kind of accepting that you are changed through, you know, events in your life and, and kind of stuff like that. And that's and that's what I appreciate about this movie is that there is more than just it is a sci-fi movie. There are things happening. Okay. Like, mm. Well, I mean, fortunately, the listeners of the projection booth are a cut above and they are okay with movies where you have to interpret them rather than being spoon fed. Uh, we, we have never talked about a Robert Redford film on here for that reason, you know, where he just has to spell <laughs> everything out. You know, I'm thinking back to quiz show and just how ham fisted that entire movie was with all of its symbolism. But here, yeah, here we can go a little bit deeper. And Tony, you mentioned the word Edenic and this whole idea of this recreation of almost this garden of Eden. I don't think it's any coincidence that. Natalie Portman's husband in here, Oscar Isaac's character, that his name is Kane. And it's interesting, too, because his, he, they call him Sergeant Kane. She calls him Kane. I don't think you call somebody like Sergeant Bill. You tend to call them like Sergeant their last name. So is she just calling him by his last name? This is kind of weird. But, you know, Kane, I think it's spelled K-A-N-E in the movie, but it's very similar to C-A-I-N, the son of Adam and Eve, who kind of ruined the party when it comes to 
their paradise and being the first murderer in the world. So I think that that's uh, very intentional that he get a name because again, in the book, I think that he is only referred to as the biologist's husband. He doesn't yeah. ever get a name in there. Well, nobody gets names in the book. In the third book, yeah, they do. Sure, the, th- the, th- the third book. But again, if we're just talking about the first book, yeah. The first, yeah, because in the third book, the psychologist is given the name of Gloria. I mean, yeah, they're, they're, they're attaching names to characters. But yeah, in the first book, there's no... No names, no nothing. I, and in the book, he never comes back. Or I guess he – well, he does come back, but then he dies immediately. Yeah, and maybe he comes back as an owl because that's the whole thing too is the way that – Oh, no. In, in the book, it's a dolphin. I thought he was an owl. I thought he was the – No, the, the control – control at the end of the third book is the thing with the owl. I think you're misremembering. No, in the first book she goes. I saw in the first book she says she sees a dolphin that looks like it has a human eye. Right, I remember that, that. She recognizes. Yeah, but no, in the third book it's her journal that we're reading, and sh- there's an owl that brings her stuff. Yeah, but doesn't the control at the end of the third book become an owl? I don't think so. He like crawls into the light at the end of the book after being injured and becomes an owl. I swear to God, I'm not mis. I'm not misremembering. I love this. the idea of people listening to this who I haven't read the second and third book thinking, <laughs> what, like, "What the, the hell, hell are you guys talking about?" <laughs> <laughs> what is Shut up on? about the books. I mean, look, realistically, I, I, I'm not sure a lot of people are going to go and read the second and third book. I mean, I can't really recommend them personally. No, and and by the way, Mike, you're right. It was the guy he turns into a rabbit at the end of the book. Well, that makes total sense. The first book makes more sense than the second and third book. Yeah, and speaking of giving characters names, if you've referred to this woman as the psychologist throughout two books, or the director she's also known as, if you start calling her Gloria, I'm not going to know who the fuck you're talking about, because now we have characters with multiple names. And same thing with the biologist, like biologist, ghost bird, Whatever her real name is. Well, and then the lighthouse keeper is given a name. Oh, as well. Evan or something. Saul. Saul. Thank Saul. you. Saul. Very, very, again, very biblical. I like Evan more. His <laughs> name is Evan. Well, what's his, his I, boyfriend's got a name too. I understand their choice to give the characters names in the movie. Definitely, I think. I think it would have been it would have been very difficult for the characters all through a movie to be running around going, "Hey, biologist," or. Hey, psychologist, you know, it would have really been, okay, it's much easier to do that on page, on the page. But so it's interesting that he chose Cain. You know, what is that saying about what men do to paradise? You know, I mean, that, that, that was my, one of the big questions I came out of this with was, what is it saying in that all of these expeditions, you know, were, were both male predominantly and militaristic? And then you send in four, relatively level-headed women with different skill sets to try and unpick the problem and then it reaches what what is a final conclusion you know it takes them confronting this annihilation and this self-destruction to essentially destroy the issue you know at the end obviously there is an open question about lena and and kane but it feels like area x has been dealt with so why why what is it saying about men this movie and and i'm not I'm not entirely sure, except that we men have more of a of a penchant for real self destruction that affects more than them individually. But it's a, it, 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 I'm not sure. And I should say that if you are ever 
in some sort of like maybe hostile environment. One of your teammates has been attacked by a crocodile who has shark teeth, all this kind of stuff. If there's a, a video cassette or a memory card waiting for you there, don't watch it. It's probably going to be bad news. I mean, it's. Well, I mean, it's going to show spy. It's going to show that spider guts, uh, snake guts. Yeah. I mean, but that's happened in so many movies where it's just like, you know, right. Oh, here you go. Here's the tape of what happened before. You know, like I, again, going back to the thing, it's like, okay, here you go. Here's, here's the, uh, the Swedish or sorry, Norwegian camp, you know, now try to figure out what's going on. And I think they had, was it? Yeah. They had video tape of them going out to the ice and all this stuff and digging up the creature. And it's just like, oh man, it's never a good thing. You are <laughs> never going to see something good on there. It's going to be yourself saying, hey, if this is me talking to you, you've got a, a wet towel wrapped around your head and people chasing you. Well, and the other thing about all of it is, especially when it says like, for those who are coming next, it's like, oh yeah. Okay, great. Like, yeah, let's really not. You could probably, you could probably stand to not watch this video. And that wonderful, it looks like, uh, mold that has grown in the guy's body, which is torn in two and all the mold growing out of it and all those different colors on the wall. I mean. Oh, it's absolutely like the imagery is. I mean, again, the imagery in this film is amazing, but the imagery with the exploded corpse uh, up against the wall is some of the most striking imagery in the entire film. And there really is no explanation for it in many in many respects. You know, it, it's it's just there. It's just this this terrible thing that happened to him. And uh, what what did that? You know, I mean that that's that's what I love about this. That there are certain things you're just like, ha- what? How? <laughs> you know, that's great. That's that's really great. Yeah, like it, it goes from he has the guts of a snake to he is just exploded. I mean, is that the same dude? Yes, I would assume so because he's got the tattoo. Well, he's also because he's up against that wall. I thought that once the crocodile attacked Tessa Thompson, that, you know, things were really getting going. But once that videotape plays, it's like the starter pistol Ugh. going off because it's like that. And then within minutes, we've got the bear attack and it just goes, goes, goes after that. I mean, it's not a fast paced movie by any stretch of the imagination, but just the things the weirdness starts to happen sooner than later you know they're they're closer together like even just like those weird little images of those deer like creatures and we see one and then it doubles and the am i correct that they have flowers growing out of their horns out of their antlers yes that's right it's so weird i mean it's gorgeous the melding of you know humans or animals and like plant life is really interesting I think that's really again. It's, it comes back to the body horror aspect of the film, and it comes back to that refraction of the DNA, because you know we're coming up very. You know, we're we're talking kind of the scene, the the film kind of scene by scene a little bit. We're coming up on the bear that is part human, and then the scene with Tessa Thompson where she becomes part flower, and by becomes part flower, I mean she literally disappears. She becomes the environment. And that refraction of the DNA is so – it starts ramping up, right? It ramps up more and more. You see a little bit of it and you see the thing with the tattoo and then you see the snake guts and then you see the bear with uh, Cass's voice and then you see Tessa Thompson just becoming the environment. And it's such an interesting idea because like we've talked about with the thing, you're used to the alien 
you know, taking over the people. And this, it's not really taking them over. It's just kind of dissolving them into something else. What are the film this reminds me of in a, in a weird way, even though they're very separate genres? Event Horizon. Well, apart from the, that, that scene on the camera, you know, with, with, with the, with the, you know, the, um, intestines and things, which is just, you see things like that in Event Horizon. Just the idea of this environment completely consuming you and taking you over and transforming you into something completely different, you know, and even though that's a spaceship in space and it's the idea of hell literally brought back. It's there's the and they're very different films. Again, it's that kind of that again. He's quite Lovecraftian weird fiction in its own way. So yeah, it, it just it's riffing off different things. One thing that Garland talked about on some of the extras was that the whole idea of the flower people, the people that it, it's they almost look like the shadows of people that have been recreated as flowers, and we have this like playground and these these figures of families or individuals that are made out of plants that are flowering. And he said that he might've been influenced by Alan Moore when it comes to that. And then even just thinking in, in Alan Moore's swamp thing in particular, when it comes to that, but, I know he didn't create Swamp Thing, but he had a really amazing run on Swamp Thing. And if, if you haven't read Alan Moore's run on Swamp Thing, I highly recommend it. But I know, again, going back to Lovecraft, I mean, Moore was a huge Lovecraft fan. The whole ending of The Watchmen was basically a Lovecraft nightmare. So, so I think so many creators take a cue from Lovecraft. I mean, Stephen King's another one who, who happily says a lot of my stuff is rooted in that kind of Lovecraftian fiction. You know, so many, even... I mean, the mist. Come on. Well, yeah, exactly. So much of it, you know, and and that's. I think a lot of it goes back to what he created. You know, a lot of this complete. You know, as Chris said it at the, at, at the start, Chris, this cosmic horror. You know, this purely indefinable sense of something that you cannot quite understand, and you never will. And you get that. You do get that with annihilation. You know, the, the 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 idea of of how the DNA reflects and what it reflects and what it's turning people into. It just is a little bit beyond everybody, you know, even though it fits with the thematic idea of biology and, you know, mitosis and reproduction and things like this. And there's a lot of imagery Garland throws in there about that. There is still this idea that these people are never going to quite understand what's going on and it leaves you at a remove. But it, but it's, it's, it, it, if anything, it makes you, I think it tethers you more to Lena as a character because she's trying to figure out a way to back to her husband. I guess. I mean, that, 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 that was the kind of journey I felt for her. She's trying to figure out a way to get back to the, the man she knew, even though she's lost him. And that's what she realizes at the end. You know, so that's, that, that's a lot of, there's a lot in the brew here, I think. That is the thing about Annihilation, the book and the movie that they, that does come through is her motivation for being in Area X or the Shimmer is because she's trying to look for her husband. In the book, the kind of the, the climax is different. Because she's like, well, he's still here somehow, so I'm going to stay and look for him. And then in the movie, I mean, she comes back and we'll, we will talk about the movie's ending, which seems like it's out of a different movie completely. Yeah, it's not, in my opinion, it's the least successful part of the film. But I do like the underlying narrative of her trying to get back to her husband because she's convinced that she, because she thinks that the person that's there isn't her husband and that if she goes into the shimmer, she can fix what's wrong with her husband on top of everything else, which ends up kind of being the case, but not really. I don't know. And you might guys might disagree with this, but I feel like she's the only character in this who isn't self-destructing that 
everyone around it, like like you guys have said very well before, are for various reasons, whether they've got cancers or this you know, they're 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 they've lost someone. Yes, she's lost her husband, but she hasn't. You know, he's there. She's she's trying to figure this out to understand what it is in order to try and get him back and to and to reconstruct what they had. But in the end, to do that, she well, and this is the question mark at the end of the movie, does she have to annihilate? Does she have to self-destruct? Does she have to destroy herself almost to get back to him? And that's that's what I took from it, that she is different from them in a different way to the book. You know, in the book, there is that whole thing about the conditioning and things like that, that that she doesn't have that they do by the Southern Reach and things like that. But I just felt like that that make that's she that's why she stood out from it. There is a possible counterpoint to that in the affair she's having or she had. My whole thought was she's self-destructive as well because the affair again, we're not given any context of when the affair happens, but I just kind of assumed or read into that it was happening after her husband had left. But it's also self-destructive because that guy is married. Yeah, that is that is true. Yeah. She's knowingly being a destructive force in someone else's life and letting someone else self-destruct through the use of her, if that makes sense. And when he's gone, I mean, he. it sounds like he has left her many, many times before. Kane has left Lena many times before, the way that she asks him, can you tell me where you're going this time? And yeah, it feels like she's got a pretty regular booty call set up with this guy, Dan. Once Kane goes out of town, okay, come on over, the husband's out. She's not doing her part to support the troops. Maybe that's that's not the case then. It does complicate things, I think, that that affair, it sort of makes her, in a way, it's her flaw, I guess. You know, it's what makes her less virtuous, I suppose, as a a protagonist. Um, It's it's interesting that they threw that in there, I think, of her sleeping with somebody else. Because I don't think that's from the book. No. No, I don't think so either. Though I could be wrong. I mean, she could be sleeping with an owl or a dolphin. I'm not really sure. <laughs> what about an owl dolphin? Okay, there you go. Whoa. That's where this... Uh, yeah, imagine if they'd adapted that. <laughs> welcome to <laughs> the Shimmer, folks. Because we get a bear with a human skull, and it is horrifying. That is... Yeah, that's the scene that really sticks with me when it comes to this movie. The whole I mean, that's the scene that sticks out to everyone, right? Oh, yeah. The whole idea of the, the character who gets eaten by the bear that her final fear and scream gets caught inside of the bear so that you hear her yelling help me and it's actually the bear growling oh my god and when it comes in and starts doing that and all our characters are tied up at this point except for the one woman who is uh her past is that she was an addict of some sort or drunk so anya i think is her name and Everybody else is tied up, and here's this bear coming in, screaming with this woman's voice. Oh, and then, yeah, the side, it took me a little while to even see that it's kind of a bear skull, but then on the side, it's a human skull, and it's like one eye shared between them. Oh, my God. The the design on this creature is just fantastic. Again, I would like to point out that for me, and I don't know how you guys interpreted this, but my interpretation of this scene is that the character of the the morphologist is the bear part of the bear because they talk about it again in the book they talk about it again in the book that like things are being refracted and that the character is changing 
into things. I mean, like like you said, Mike, about the thing with her husband being the owl and the character at the end of the third book becoming a, a rabbit. Like, I just kind of interpreted that the bear creature was the morphologist who had been refracted into the bear. Well, I mean, this, this is the thing, though. This is where I think what's interesting about the, the refraction and that what Area X is doing, what the organism does is that it kind of makes no distinction between any parts of nature. It almost ma- it almost brews everything up into one one single organism, one single DNA that that then combines with everything else. You know, I mean there's that scene early on where I think it might be um I think it might be Lena where she say where she talks about the the flowers, how they look different, the plants look different, but they have the same structure. They have the same cell structure and they and they they and it, and it shouldn't be, you know? So I think it's almost like the, the the there's a homogeny to it all that this organism is trying to make everything essentially one thing, and in in, the, in a sense that's terrifying. In that yes, it might look like this paradise, but at the same time, what it's doing is it's completely removing any individuality, and it could almost be like one collective singular organism with different strands in nature. And I think and that and that bear, yeah, I agree with you. I think it is. It is her, and I think it's terrifying. That thought is terrifying. Well, that's why it's screaming, help me, is because she's stuck in there. And it's like, you know, she she wants she wants out because, again, if you were all of a sudden refracted into this bear monster, you'd be fucking terrified, too. I mean, you'd want out as well. Yeah, and when that bear attacks Anya, that is just... Again, absolutely horrific. It just the the struggle, her up on the stairs and then being snatched down. Oh God, it is amazing. The special effects going behind the scenes and watching those was really remarkable because it was a guy in a mocap suit being the bear, and they, so they had something to paint over. So all those things of him taking her, she's on a wire, but taking her and throwing her around and stuff. That was all her getting thrown around. It was terrific. On top of everything else with this movie, the amount of, like, quality effort put into what is a smaller film, a smaller independent film, and, like, the quality of the effects, like you're talking about, Mike, it's refreshing. I mean, yes, it's filmed at night, okay, there's always the joke about, you know, how do you cover up something with bad CGI, just film it at night, you won't be able to tell, but I don't think that that applies here. No, because a lot of this is in broad daylight. Right. The one scene that everybody remembers from this film, if you've seen it with the bear, takes place at night. Sure. But so much of the film is like, it's really well done. Like the quality of the CGI and the effects is really well done. I mean, I know it's not, I mean, I know it's not really an independent film. I mean, it had studio backing behind it, but it's treated like an independent film the way it was released. Yeah. But you, you've also got to remember this is, this was made for between 40 to $50 million. And they don't just, they don't make films for that much anymore, do they? You know, that, that now, really the budgets for those kind of movies far more are parlayed into TV shows, you know, and you might have, I mean, it's almost, it's a surprise in a way that Annihilation wasn't made as like a six part, you know, miniseries for Amazon, you know, or for Netflix and that Alex Garland went, did it there. It's a, it's surprising it was a movie in a way because for that kind of budget, you know, it's, it's, it's unusual that it even was made into a film in the first place. 
They could have easily made this into a TV show. You were talking about Lost. I mean, we could have done those flash sideways of all these different characters and seen them out in the real world. You know, seeing Anya with her struggle, seeing the Tessa Thompson character with her struggle, have all that stuff as our backstory as we go through each episode. I mean, it would have been perfect because we've got the five main female characters. Each one of them, we could have gone into their backstory as we've gone through each episode. Let's not discount the fact that that could theoretically happen down the road. I mean, you you just make the show called Southern Reach and be done with it. The book trilogy is known as the Southern Reach trilogy. Just call the show Southern Reach and cover all three books, and there you go. And make it three seasons. I mean, you know, I mean, right? Like, there's there they they very well might end up doing that. I mean, I would not would it wouldn't put it outside of the realm of possibility. You know, considering how little this movie like how little impact this movie ended up making kind of the pop culture conversation it's a very telling line for me the next day when the psychologist the jennifer jason lee character says that one person started this trip and she wants to be the same person by the end of it because she feels like she's changing and we've already seen lena looking at her cells under a microscope and seeing that they're starting to shine so it's just like okay this whole idea of again changing as you're going throughout here is just, she kind of brings it home with a line directly like that. And after she leaves, it's just Lena and Josie is the Tessa Thompson character. That is very telling as well, because that's the first time we've seen her arm. She's wearing a short sleeve shirt at that point or a tank top. So we get to see all the scars on her arms because that was kind of the baggage that she was carrying and now she's accepted what she is and she's got all these lines on her arms these scars and that's when she decides that she's just gonna get up and walk out and yeah i she becomes one of these tree people and just gets absorbed completely by area x she lets herself become absorbed that's the more important part is there you know that like with Cass, who she becomes the bear or Ventress, who I guess she kind of gives over into it, willingly, unwillingly. It looks like she's in, a, in an amount of pain at the end of the film. Tessa Thompson just kind of lets it happen. Mm. And yeah. I find that to be the most one of the more interesting aspects of the film is you have characters who are fighting the change. And then you have one character who says, well, I've been here before. I know what this means, and I'm going to give into it. And I, I like that. Again, it's up to interpretation about self-destruction and some people's willingness to accept it and some people's willingness to fight it. And having a character who allows it to wash over her and become one with it is I think it's it's pretty it's a pretty it's some great symbolism, some great imagery. I would say that there's probably some sort of I, I don't know how the suicide relates into becoming like a flower. I'm sure that you could read into that even more, but her character's transformation is pretty interesting. Thank God we don't see her walking and start to slow down and like vines coming out of her legs. <laughs> <laughs> this could have gotten Poison real Ivy. cheesy real fast. <laughs> uh, does it suggest that that could, it could be a choice? You know, were this organism to basically, you know, consume everything, consume the entire planet, you know, Ventress says at one point, you know, what cities will be next, you know, that kind of thing. So there's the, the point is there that this, if they don't stop this, this is going to take the entire planet. Is it, is it that you would be presented with a choice? You know, do you, do you give in and do you become part of the, of this, of like I say, this collective homogenized, you know, 
whatever it is, nature, entity, you know, this form, or do you fight it? Do you fight back? You know, and that, and that's, and that's what I think one of the central ideas in the film, as we've talked about. Well, I think the other thing to point out is regardless of whether or not you fight it, the outcome seems to be the same. Right. And that, and again, that goes back to the, the ideas of self-destruction, whether you fight it or whether you accept it, the outcome is always going to be the same when you're dealing in self-destruction because Tessa Thompson doesn't fight it and she becomes one with the environment. Ventress doesn't fight it. She becomes one with the environment. Cass fights it, becomes one with the environment. Either you fight it or don't, but there, and, and when we get to the next scene in the lighthouse with the kind of inevitability with Kane's character uh, and the choice that he makes, uh, again, it's an inevitability seemingly of the situation. He kind of accepts it and self-destructs, self-immolates. This movie's very nice because it gives us some title cards so we know, you know, okay, this is the third act. We've got the <laughs> – I'm surprised it doesn't say <laughs> act three, the lighthouse. Which is – it's taken a cue from the book, isn't it? Because the books have similar kind of – you know, the chapters have certain names. Well, they're, 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 more, they're more interested in the sense that they are – like things like integration, you know, annihilation. They are specific pointers in terms of maybe what we're what what is being described, you know, in ter- in various different ways. Whereas this, it's more geographical, you know, Area X, you know, the Shimmer, the Lighthouse. I suppose. I suppose it's it's it's. Well, I don't know what what that. I mean, what, what do you, what do you guys think of? Why do you think he put the title cards in there? Is it because do, is it that he was he was worried we would we wouldn't understand that this is a journey of sorts into somewhere? I don't know. Was that just a nod to the book? I feel like it was a nod to the book, and maybe it wasn't even Garland's choice to put the title cards in there. I feel like they're a little unnecessary. It feels a little Donnie Darko, like Donnie Darko director's cut esque. Where it's like, I need to explain this because you don't understand it. Because, like, that's the whole thing with that, you know, the second version of Donnie Darko that ended up being the director's cut is, you know, Richard Kelly has all these weird title cards that are trying to kind of give you an idea of what's coming up next. And this film kind of does the same thing. It's like, we don't really need any of this. Like, Area X, they literally are going to say five seconds after the title card, you're in Area X. This is the lighthouse. Like, really? We couldn't tell. It looks like a lighthouse. Like, what? And we kind of have Benedict Wong there to also be us. You know, he's like, okay, so how are you the only one left? Cut to the lighthouse. It's like, okay, thank you. You know, he's he's good at moving this story along, and he shows up to ask these questions in order to get get things going but yeah i agree i don't think we necessarily need the title card because yeah it's like (laughs) i'm surprised that it wasn't the lighthouse and then down at the bottom across the bottom it says the lighthouse (laughs) yeah it's like like the washington monument and then it says washington dc i do i do like the benedict wong stuff though i do like the you know the 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 bookending sort of in media res nature of that you know in that it's it adds to that sense of foreboding and doom. You know, at the very beginning, we find out some of these characters don't make it, you know, before we even meet them. You know, you get names like Shepard and, and this kind of thing and Wenick and all this, and, and she says dead or don't know. So you know that these characters, something's going to happen. So I think it, it adds to that sense of what you're going to what you're going to find and builds up that expectation. Yeah, it's an interesting framing device that a lot of movies have tried to use it, and a lot of them don't work because it almost like, it 
sucks the life out of the film because then you're like, oh, there are no stakes now. But in this film, it gives a sense of, like you guys have said, a sense of foreboding that really works. Or it's that mystery where it's just like, okay, well, we know that they're dead, but how are they dead? Why are they dead? What happened here? And yeah, once we get to the lighthouse, like I said, those crystal trees that are outside, very reminiscent to me of the Ballard stuff. And then those freaking skeletons and skulls and everything all lined up outside. Oh my God, that just, again, sends shivers down my spine. Yeah, the imagery in this film is fantastic, isn't it? If nothing else, Alex Garland, you know, I'm not a huge fan of Ex Machina, but I can appreciate the imagery in that film. And then when you come to a film like this, I mean, this film is just chock full of just amazing imagery. Yeah, he's kind of hit or miss for me a lot of times, because it's like, I mean, I like the first two thirds of Sunshine, but I really hate that third act. The Tesseract, I did not think was very good. And then I I don't know how much – what was the whole story with Dread? Because he – the movie Dread is one of my favorite films. I love Dread a lot. But that was a whole – was it him being kept out of the editing room or was it uh, the, the guy who's listed as director now being kept out of the editing room? There's a whole controversy about that. But that was one of those where I was like, okay, I don't know what your original vision was, but what we ended up with was fantastic. Well, and the thing about the original script for Dread is it was supposed to be about Judge Death on top of everything else. As a huge fan of Judge Dread, they have yet to – God, they have yet to put that in a movie. And I want that so bad. Like the all the judges in a movie with Judge Dread because I feel like that would be amazing. But the yeah, the thing with Dread with Alex Garland, like it's one of those like the, the story behind it is as interesting as the movie. But the, 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 the surprising thing is as well that he didn't actually direct those two. You know, he, he and that and that's that's the thing. He's he's only directed Ex Machina and Annihilation. Ex Machina, I think, was a, got a, a bit more of a reach and a bit more of an impact than Annihilation has. But for years, he's been playing with a lot of these big, broad themes that are are, are very based, very deep rooted in science fiction. But they are very they are very nihilistic in many ways. You know, you have you, you only have to look at like the, tw- the twenty eight days later, and as you say, Sunshine. And, and never let me go. He's, he's interested in these worlds, these, these quite dark, cold worlds where there are characters who are, who are in some sense doomed. And I think he's, he, he, I think he's one of those directors who is going to, I, I don't think he's ever going to become a JJ Abrams, you know? I don't, I think he's always going to be doing. We already have too many of those. I think we don't need any more. Depending on what you think of those those kind of directors, you know, I think he's always going to be a fairly cult director making stuff that is a little bit outside of the mainstream in some senses. And I think when he gets a bit too close to that, his ideas and his visuals and what he's trying to say get a bit too weird to be pigeonholed and boxed. And I, and I think that's why he's a, he's a, he was a great fit for Annihilation, you know, in that sense. And I think he shows that with a lot of a lot of these arresting visuals and this climax, which is which is really innovative. I think I think it does fuse together a lot of different a different genres, and I think it takes a cue from a lot of different things. But he sort of makes it his own with what happens at the end. And I, this this is the other bit that's as memorable, I think, as the as the um, the bear and the help me and and that scene. This is this ending is is the other one that really sticks in my mind. Oh, I actually like this scene more than the bear. I mean, I know everybody gets hung up on the bear, but the essentially from when Lena walks down into the hole and sees Ventress becoming the ball of light, whatever we want to call it. 
the cosmic starfish that's melding in on itself, like that whole sequence until she's outside the lighthouse is it's beautiful and terrifying and surreal and i you i can't say enough about it because it's so amazing this whole third act is like a movie unto itself i mean it has acts inside of it it has the subplots inside of here because even before she crawls in that hole she gets to see what ended up happening to kane and just that little sequence itself is fantastic again we've got this what I say, if you find a videotape, don't play it, but here she goes. She's going to watch the death of her husband, and after he sets himself off with this phosphorus grenade, that we then get another version of her husband coming in and looking back at the camera. Wow. Just holy shit. <laughs> what am I watching right now, right? And then, yeah, going down into that hole. When she goes down into the hole, I was reminded of the end of Phase 4, which I know not too many people have seen, but it's kind of a similar thing when we go into basically the ant colony kind of thing. Ventress going off into the ball of light. And even before she does that, I was trying to see, is her face Jacob's different? ladder, man. Some Jacob's Ladder stuff going on. It's weird. Is her face different when she is towards us and her back to Lena? That's what it looks like. Okay. I was the having- lighting is a little dark. I, I think it's this whole scene is meant to very much wrong foot you in many ways. I mean, and the, the thing is what, what I thought was interesting about what they do with this is that they make, they com- he completely changes the significance of the lighthouse. In the, in the book, there is another structure called the tower. And there's this idea that the tower, everyone is fixated on the fact the tower has steps going underground into a hole and they keep calling it a tunnel. And she keeps saying, no, it's a tower. It's, it's, it's a, it's a visual, visible structure going up. And you've also got the lighthouse, which is a separate thing, but he kind of amalgamates the two here and he puts the, the tunnel in the, in the lighthouse. You know, he, he, he lets things go. The one thing I th- I'm really sad that he didn't include is the writing on the wall made out of like biological sort of letters and vines and things because it's this really like stream of terrifying weird consciousness where things like where lies the strangling fruit that came from the hand of the sinner? I shall bring forth the seeds of the dead to share with the worms that and it goes on and on and on. There's no punctuation. It's just like a stream of st- strange consciousness and this, this prophetic, you know, weirdness from whatever's at the bottom of this tower and he kind of loses that but i think he does include the idea of there being this i mean i I don't know about you guys i i really got i got a lot of um female genitalia imagery from this you know i it felt it felt a bit like a womb inside there you know like a a hole you go down and then there's and and it's like a it feels it feels like you're emerging from that as something new he does some interesting st- things there, I think, with visuals in, in that he transforms what is on the page into on the, scr- on, the, on the screen. Well, when you have the, like what you're talking about, Mike, with Kane, where he self-destructs and then he's rebirthed immediately because you see then that there is another Kane behind the camera. He went down in there as well. So he went down there and came out changed as well. Like you said, Tony, that the whole kind of the, the process of change and refraction it's just the the film compiles so much into this last scene. And another thing I wanted to, I wanted to mention in two films along with this one in the last year you've had the major climactic sequences of the film have a dance component, a choreographed dance component because 
it struck me as like a dance between Lena and her doppelganger. It's like a weird choreographed mirrored dance. And then you have a film like the remake of Suspiria that has a choreographed dance aspect in its climax. Then you have Jordan Peele's Us, which I mean, you know, successful for some, not successful for others. But it also has that choreographed dance aspect to the climax. And I just I found that really weird that all of a sudden, like dance is kind of becoming part of culture again like choreographed dance in the climax of these films and this was kind of the first one that i can remember in the last year that has that kind of dance aspect to it in the climax but it's like a dance right i'm not the only one who thought that i hope no no it is it it feels it's like a combination of like um interpretive dance mixed with well obviously it's mimicry but it's also it feels almost like a, a a game between them like it, it, like they're trying to combat one another and trying to get get the beat on on the other, you know. And it, it's it, it's a it's a strange blend of the two, and that's why at the end, I mean, I I still don't know quite what happens really here. <laughs> I'm still at the end of it. I was still like, is I was trying to figure out which Lena gets out of there, and I still don't really know. I really don't. It feels like a directive from the studio to change the ending so it's more. I don't, I just don't like the ending where it's like, is it Lena? Is it not? That feels out of like a cheap horror movie. And it's such a trope that's been used so many times. It's like, the real one didn't escape. Is it really Childs? Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's like, shut the fuck up. Like, we, we don't need this now. Is it, is, is Deckard a replicant or not? Or not? Like, oh my God, shut up. Like, no one cares that much. Yeah. I mean, there are a thousand YouTube videos that are just like, okay, here's the ending explained. It's like, fuck off. I don't need and that. And Blade Runner 2049 doesn't help with any of that, which is fine. Um, but they don't, don't make it the sole focus of the film. But with Annihilation, with the ending where it's like, is it Lena? Is it not? I mean, the way I look at it is you could interpret it as the story that's being told. Lena is an unreliable narrator. And you don't know if the one that got burned is the real one the one that entered let's let's put it this way we don't know because she's an unreliable narrator if the one that got burned was the one who entered the shimmer and the one who left was the doppelganger or if what we're being told is the truth which in and of itself is really cheap and it's a cheap thing to do well you're tricking us the way i interpret the ending is the one who entered is the one who left but she has changed inherently anyways and you see that throughout the entire film you see that her DNA is changing long before she gets to the lighthouse. So she's not the same person that entered that left anyways. And when he asks her, are you Lena? She goes, you know, she gasps. And then you see the shimmer in both of their eyes. But I always interpret it as it's the same one that entered that left. She's just changed anyways, because of course she was going to be. It's not this bait and switch fake out thing that just feels so cheap and from a film that is not as well put together as this one or well thought out as this one. So much so that the ending, the original ending of this film was changed. The original ending was, I feel like would have worked better. I want to know when Oscar Isaac was told to speak with a Southern accent because he speaks with a very pronounced Southern accent on that videotape. And that's the only time he uses it in the entire movie. His doppelganger loses it is what they is is again it's cha- he changed right his doppelganger is not him completely but also yeah he doesn't have a southern accent in the other scenes I thought I was a man I had a life 
People call me Cain, and now I'm not so sure. If I wasn't Cain, what was I? Was I you? Were you me? My flesh moves like liquid. My mind is cut loose. I can't bear it. Is, is it a case of Michael Fassbender in X-Men First Class Syndrome here, where you go from Irish to English to <laughs> German, God knows what. Yeah, it's that whole, I don't know. It could, it could be, it could be that, that it's intentional. It could be one of those things that you were layering in there to, to, yeah, you know, to show he's changed. It's hard to say, really. I, I, I think, I, I wonder what, what the intention is with the shimmer in the eyes at the end. I wonder, is it suggesting that this organism or whatever it was is going to remain in the world? And I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm with you guys in that. I don't really want it to be that. I don't want it to be the idea that, oh, you know, maybe something terrible will happen as a result of this. I quite like the idea. I much prefer the idea that, yeah, she gets back to her, her facsimile of a husband. And even though she's the same woman, physically, she is now a facsimile of Lena. I quite I I think that works better in that they they they're both they both lost who they were but they but they found each other again. They're someone new but that's not a bad thing. I mean ultimately again like that's the whole thing with this movie is that it it is trying to impress upon the viewer that change is not a bad thing because again like you mentioned before Tony the the motivation of the shimmer is unknown and it's possibly malevolent possibly malevolent and we just never know and i like that more than oh in the thing where it's like oh this is a monster and it'll take over the world if it gets out and then obviously like you mentioned mike i mean jesus christ the amount of like analysis with can you see his breath is he drinking gasoline like fuck off god who cares and then in the video game, they went on and said that it wasn't McCready and it was Child, so who gives a shit anyways? <laughs> but, <laughs> right, um, right. Same with the comic books, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it's like, uh, you know, who who cares? I mean, Blade Runner is still like the big one about is Deckard a robot or, you know, a replicant or not. But I just, I think people getting hung up on that with this film is unimportant and unnecessary because that's not what Garland was going for. Well, it's... <laughs> It's not what I think he was trying to put across, but it's kind of the way people are going to interpret it if they're just like, is that the real one or not? Like that, you're missing the point. It's completely, you're completely missing it. Yeah, I mean, the script, it's more obfuscated. They're like, okay, you know, they are smeared with blood identically, and we have literally no way of telling who is who. You know, one Lena lunges at the other, and one Lena topples backwards over the edge of the balcony, falling down into the phosphorus blaze. So it's not like they have her, you know, pull the pin on the, the grenade. There's already the grenade has gone off or there, there's already a fire happening and then it happens. And it's interesting too, because, you know, we don't ever know how she gets back to the world and back to Benedict Wong. Um, but we do in the script, there's this whole thing of, um, 
Let's see. There's a doctor who says it was miraculous. It happened the same night that the shimmer disappeared. His blood pressure stabilized and his pulse rate started to rise. By the next morning, he was not only awake, he was lucid and coherent. He's talking about Kane and that. So what? when this thing happens with Lena, the whole shimmer disappears. So after, you know, we kind of get that idea of the, the shimmer being destroyed at the end through fire and being burned out that way. And then the doctor also says there's no trace of abnormality in his system. So she goes in and sees Kane, and we have that same, are you Kane? I don't know. Are you Lena? She hesitates. And then it says, behind her, we can see through the windows of to the night sky. In the sky, we see a shooting star, then another, then another. Cut to the lower atmosphere, night. The shooting stars are falling meteors. As we saw in the beginning images of the film, a hunk of rock burning as it falls through the Earth's atmosphere. And as the nearest meteor splits apart, we see its core, something shimmering, cut to black, the end. So this is only the beginning, basically, when it comes to this stuff. And yeah, I don't really want this to be an alien invasion film. I just want it Mm. to be what it is. And I'm happy with what we ended up with. I actually think that ending could have worked because it 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 comes back to the inevitability of self-destruction and that regardless of the destruction of the shimmer it's coming anyways. It 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 ties back into the self-destruction of the film because look, I mean like you mentioned Mike, as far as I'm concerned you've got damned if you do, damned if you don't. You've got this ending where it's thing blade runner-esque where it sows questions of who is the real Lena? And then you've got the other one, which is now it's an alien invasion. So which is which is less of an obnoxious way to end the film? Right. I mean, it's obnoxious one way or another. Is it the who's who question or is it the, oh, the aliens are invading now? But again, I think if they had gone with the original ending, that is the one that's in the script of all of a sudden, here's the inevitability of the shimmer coming anyways, even if Lena destroys it and everyone is going to be changed and there is going to be a change in the world, maybe for the better, like you mentioned, Tony, where we don't know what the shimmer is, maybe for the worse. I think that's a more compelling ending, even if it is kind of an open-ended sequely ending, than the shimmer is in each other's eyes. It's like, ah. Oh, eh. I mean, I've heard this called like, um, like an eco-horror film, and that really strikes me pretty well, because the way that the shimmer is rewriting DNA and that inside of the shimmer... We don't have people necessarily, and it's an absolutely gorgeous, pristine landscape. And yeah, maybe it's kind of nature fighting back. Maybe it's what the happening should have been, where nature is like, okay, here's enough. You guys just kill each other, kill yourselves, and we're off to the races, and the world is reset. Because it seems like that's what the Shimmer is trying to do, is just like reset the world. We don't see any sort of you know plastic debris any place inside of here. What? No! Tony mentioned Under the Skin. This also reminded me a little bit of Arrival. It could have been some of the music cues as well, but also that we have another fairly strong female lead character. And I really appreciate this movie, Arrival and Under the Skin, for having these strong lead female characters in a sci-fi movie that aren't constantly being undercut and having the rug pulled out from under them like Jodie Foster in Contact, where basically she just gets humiliated for two and a half hours. 
<laughs> yeah, she does. I, I I love Contact, but yeah, that's that is true actually. And I, th- I think I think it's a sign of the times. You know, Contact was made in 1997, and I think things have changed. You know, female represent- representation in movies has changed enormously since then, or it's on the verge of changing, or it's in the process of change. And I think you know, I mean, it, it does come from the book. You know, Vandermeer wrote a ca- four female characters going to the into the area X. You know, it's not an invention for the movie, but just it's so it's not a cynical thing just to sort of capitalize on, on you know female representation or anything. It is faithful to the book, but at the same time, it's more interesting that it's women. I think I think it, it's more interesting that it's, it, that Lena is the main character as opposed to it being Oscar Isaac and it's a it's a bunch of guys. I think if you had a bunch of guys going there, you you start, you have a completely different film altogether, you know. And I th- I think it, it it's more. I, I don't know quite how to describe it. I think it 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 makes. I think you're able to get more into the ideas, the underpinning ideas about this change inside a human being through the prism of 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 rational capable women going into this into into this area in the wake of gung-ho military men and untapping what what's in there i, ju- I just I, I think it's a, co- a deliberate conscious choice that works for this story i think it's nice too that women are the ones that are capable of creating new life with a little bit of help but this whole idea of the creation and that women are creators really helps out as well when it comes to the whole idea of the new life coming out of Area X. Hence, going back to the womb idea, the idea that the lighthouse becomes a womb, the idea of rebirth, the idea of transforming in something new. And it, yeah, it is. It, it, you, the film tries to maybe sell you on more of a sinister route with this. But I think if you look at it from a different perspective, and there is obvious horror, the bear, the, the 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 savage death that some of these people have but if you look at it from a different point of view it could be read as the birth of a new life form a new organism a new version of our earth i really like the eco horror thing you you mentioned mike i think that's a great theory actually i think that fits in a big way and it fit in terms of a a timely conversation right now about climate and about environment as well i think it all fits it fits nicely into that brew so i i i like i i like reading it in that context well, and that's why the idea of the original ending, I think, works towards the eco-horror idea more. Is all of a sudden, it's, it's inevitable. And then and then you have the idea of the Ouroboros tattoo on her arm, where it means, you know, it's infinity, and so it's bound to keep happening. I mean, again, that that would build on everything. And, and this, I mean, again, this film is just chock full of interpretation and imagery and everything that a good sci-fi, cerebral sci-fi film should have. And surprisingly, they go for, you know, almost two hours without making any sort of queef jokes, which I thought from watching Ghostbusters was the common thing that women do when they're together. What? The female, the feminists are taking over. (laughs) I, God, yeah. I mean, this movie is not nearly as good as Ghostbusters 2016, primarily because it doesn't have any queef jokes or wonton soup jokes. Oh, God. How many, how many uh, wontons in the wonton soup? Yeah. Three wonton soup jokes in that movie. That's very important. We need those. You can't, if it was two, the movie would collapse. But since it's three, it's the perfect number. The movie succeeds 100%. I am so <laughs> sad that you and I have both seen that movie. I, and I saw it in the theater. So did I. Yeah. Opening day. Boy, not a laugh was shared in that entire theater. All right. We're going to take a break and play a preview for next week's show. On a distant planet, a great kingdom was 
was ravaged by beings who came from the future to conquer the universe. Now, the only survivors follow a doubtful seer and a throneless king. They will hold her in the Black Fortress. You must have help. Thieves, bandits, fighters and brawlers. Desperate men. Those are the kind of men I need. Well, you heard him. We are now an army. At the end of an impossible journey, they must fight an invincible enemy. Here's the knowledge you seek. I shall be your king. In the fortress, you will face more than the slayers. What is about to happen to them could never have happened on Earth. Columbia Pictures presents a world apart from anything you have seen before. That's right. We'll be back next week with a discussion of the film Crawl. Get your glaives ready. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Chris and Tony. Tony, I hear you have some big news in your life, sir. Yeah, I kind of do. I have a a book that is out for uh, pre-order now. Um, It is called Myth... It's got a lengthy title, so bear with me on this. Myth Building in Modern Media, the Role of the Myth Arc in Imagined Worlds, which is coming out later this year from McFarlane Publishing. And it's, I won't go into too much depth, but it is a, it's a nonfiction uh, book about um, the concept of mythology in movies and television and how the myth arc, such things as the uh, monomythic hero's journey and has its, has its genesis it actually in Lovecraft. And there is a whole section on Lovecraft in the book going through comic book fiction all the way through to modern television and things like the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So it sort of spreads across the last f- several few decades, really going back quite a while. So hopefully it'll be an interesting read. So I'm really excited that that's coming out. And yeah, if you go to McFarland publishing, you can find that book to pre-order. So. Yeah, more, more news on that later in the year, I think. Very cool. You know, we were talking earlier about a possible TV show of Annihilation, and I did want to note that Garland's next project is something called Devs, the EVS at the moment, which is supposed to come out this year, I guess, and he is writing and uh, directing a lot of that. So he basically is going into TV. So maybe after his experience with Annihilation, he said, screw it, long-form television. Thank you very much. I think it's a great idea. I can't wait for that. Yeah, I look forward to it. And don't forget how polarizing Annihilation was to the point of either you love this movie or you... I mean, it was on 2100 screens. But that's a love, by the way, that I feel like needs to be mentioned that I, I either know people that loved it or hated it, but nobody has a middle-of-the-road opinion. That's true. Even when I posted last week that I was rewatching the film, I mean, I got a lot of like, oh my god, I love this movie, and then I got... TV movie version of Stalker. And I was like, oh, okay, that's a pretty damning put down. <laughs> yeah. It's also a pretty, uh, pretty lame put down, but you know. But yeah, I, I dig it. I, I obviously, or else I wouldn't be talking about it for two hours. <laughs> and Chris, when people want to continue to hear the dulcet tones of your voice, where can they get their fill? If they want to hear my voice, they can head on over to the Culture Cast where you join me about once, twice a month talking movies. Uh, this month, 
the month of July, we are going to be talking about body horror films. So kind of in the same realm of Annihilation. Maybe not, uh, maybe not as heady as Annihilation. I don't think Street Trash really talks about some of the same topics. But uh, yeah, you can find me over at the Culture Cast. I also do a little podcast with you, Mike, called the Kolchak Tapes, where we talk about Kolchak the Night Stalker. <gasps> Uh, once a month, you can find that at Kolchak Tapes. And we also do another podcast together about Twilight Zone 1985. You can find that one at TwilightZone85.com. You keep my schedule very full. Well, thanks again, guys, for being on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please head on over to the website where you can find more information about today's episode. you also find links over to this thing called iTunes, which by the time this airs, I'm not sure if iTunes will even be around, uh, but maybe you can go over and rate and review the show. And you can find links over to Patreon where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating we get helps the projection booth take over the world. Other. 
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.